Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As the turquoise waves lapped against the white sands of Montego Bay, John Block put his feet up and took a sip of wine. Relaxing at a friend's house on Jamaica's northern shore, he'd occasionally cheer at the television showing the speech being given by his boss back home in D.C. Block's job that night was simple. Stay alive. It was 1986, and John Block was the agriculture secretary in Ronald Reagan's cabinet. The speech was the State of the Union, and Block was the designated survivor, a lower-level cabinet member chosen not to attend in case there was the need for a grim contingency plan. With all of the high-ranking officials in the government in one place, should some catastrophe occur, the designated survivor would be able to take over running the nation. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo was this year's pick, although there was no Jamaican getaway for her. Since 9-11, the role has been taken more seriously, with the chosen survivor squirreled away in a secure location by the Secret Service. She watched Joe Biden give the marquee address at a time when his presidency is in a slump. I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... How is Joe Biden's presidency going? Over his nearly half century in Washington, Joe Biden has attended many State of the Union addresses. This week, it was finally his time at the podium. Just over a year into his presidency, inflation is soaring, COVID variants have extended the death toll of the pandemic, and the signature piece of his domestic agenda is stuck. Now he has a foreign crisis to deal with too, while trying to make sure his party doesn't get a drubbing at the midterm elections later this year. Can Joe Biden rescue his presidency? With me to discuss Joe Biden's presidency so far are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and Idris Kaloon, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, how are things in New York? Well, like everybody else, I'm watching what's unfolding in Ukraine with grave concern. And in the U.S., it was interesting to watch the president's State of the Union speech. We hadn't seen it in that format last year, of course. And I was reminded just of what a weird spectacle it is. It's very strange with the different people who the president brings in to stand as props and all of the forced applause and who gives a standing ovation and who doesn't. It's it's quite a weird format, but I enjoyed watching it. It is a weird format. And we'll get into that in a minute, I think. Idris, how about you? How is it to be back in the nation's capital? Uh, yeah, it's good. I'm glad to be back from London and also enjoyed watching our annual spectacle of political theater and writing my review. 
um, which was a fun exercise. And DC is a very politically engaged city with lots of people from all over the world. Of course, all the ambassadors from all over the world there. I imagine there's been a lot of support for Ukraine, as there was indeed in the in the State of the Union, where so many people were wearing yellow and blue. Yeah, there has. I mean, I've seen people with flag pins, you know, the Ukrainian flag next to the American lapel that you often see on everyone's Brooks Brothers suit. So there are two flags now competing uh, instead of one. Okay. Let's get into this. I thought that we would use the occasion of the State of the Union to pause for a moment and assess the Biden presidency so far. So first of all, I called up our Lexington columnist, James Astill, for a chat, and we started with his thoughts about the big speech. I thought it started out pretty well. I thought that the rhetoric on Ukraine was kind of well judged. And I think that Biden, you know, is acknowledged by most reasonable people to have played a fairly weak hand strongly on Ukraine. So he had a sort of good story to tell, and it's always good to be on the right side of history making principal points. So I thought that was all rather moving and well done. And then I just thought it sort of tailed off into something that felt very familiar from Biden's campaign speeches, really, which is to say a collection of, you know, sort of well-meaning priorities not fully fleshed out into believable policy delivered in a sort of blustering, flustered, slightly inarticulate way, which didn't hang together in a convincing narrative, as Politico folk like to say. So um, I thought it started off well and tailed off into sort of the worst of Biden and sort of the worst of State of the Union speeches, really. Ultimately, that speech won't matter too much for his presidency, right? Even though I agree with your assessment of it. How ought we to assess a presidency? I mean, I have to, I'm sure you have the same thing because you write the Lexington column. People who don't work in politics often come up to me and express very strong opinions about a presidency. You know, this president's good or this president's bad. And I confess, I tend to avoid getting into those conversations because it's a complicated thing really to evaluate a presidency because you have to think about all sorts of decisions not made and you know what would have happened if the president had done something different and also you have to think in realistic terms about the power that the president actually has as opposed to some kind of imagined idea of what the president's powers are but how do you think we ought to go about assessing a presidency perhaps before we get to your assessment of the Biden presidency one year in like what's a sensible way to go about doing that Here's two sorts of benchmarking for you, John. One is, did this presidency really make the weather and change politics or policy in some really imaginative and impressive way? Only a minority of presidents do that. And we know their names, and they're always listed as the greatest, whether it's FDR or Reagan or whoever. Then I think a sort of more realistic measure would be, did this president play the cards that he was given competently? The reason that not many presidents do make the weather is not only because there aren't that many great individuals, but because the presidency is an incredibly difficult job. And and very often you don't get the opportunity to do dramatic things that change the country in fundamental positive ways. A calmer judgment of history normally looks back and says, did this guy do a reasonable job in the times that he lived with the power that he had. And, you know, making those kind of judgments, speaking through the news and the the partisan fervour and all the rest of it, is quite hard to do in real time. But I guess that's the sort of judgment that I try to make. And, okay, the cards he was dealt, how has he played them? And I mean, I think of his presidency, I think of sort of three buckets, COVID, 
domestic legislation and foreign policy. How do you think he's done on, on each of those? Let's go backwards, because foreign policy is so much uppermost in all of our minds right now. And with this presidency, one has to start, and this might sound like a mealy mouth point, one has to start by looking at the alternative. Biden stopped Trump getting a second term. Had Trump had a second term, he would have greatly aggravated the damage that he was already doing to the international order, which Putin is now dedicated to overthrowing. He would, we are credibly told, have tried to withdraw America from the NATO alliance. He would certainly have undercut Ukraine ahead of this conflict, you know, e even more than he was doing during his first term. It is wonderful that Trump is not the president of America in this crisis and that Biden is. Biden, and in particular, his sort of shrewd, no-fuss, competent foreign policy team led by Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, they take the credit, really, for this impressive united NATO response to Putin's aggression. So I think Biden gets a good amount of credit on the biggest foreign policy problem that he's faced. I agree with that. I think obviously we've been critical of his Afghan withdrawal. You have written some you know, very tough columns, scathing columns about that. But this is such an important issue. And I think the European response to Putin's invasion of Ukraine, which has been surprisingly tough, you know, particularly in places like Germany, I don't think the Europeans would have been so tough if Donald Trump were president, because I think there wouldn't be that sense of, you know, NATO is strong, you know, America's got our back here. So that seems like a huge one. I don't think they would have been as, as strong if Barack Obama had been president either, because Biden's old school Atlanticism has really come at the man. It's felt like an old time position to some, but now is its moment again. So I think, you know, plaudits to him on that. And working backwards, how about domestic legislation? I think it's been uh, a case of massively overpromising and somewhat underachieving. The idea that with his modest power, the, the slenderest Senate majority it's possible to have, was going to have an opportunity to remake the safety net to introduce incredibly bold federal climate position. None of that really survived the election result. But a large part of the Democratic Party carried on dreaming that he would have those powers, that this was another New Deal moment. And Biden just didn't do enough to beat back those expectations. He has clearly achieved some important things. You know, we, we all talk about the major infrastructure bill that's been passed. He should have talked up that achievement much more loudly and much sooner and not chased a fading dream of much bolder measures. And how about the last one, COVID? I mean, when he was sworn in as president, we thought that he was the president who had come to try and, you know, help manage America through this time of national crisis. That crisis is now happily, mostly in the rearview mirror. How, how did he do? So let's be generous just to start with, the fact that he was not Trump saying crazy things about COVID and all of that was a good thing into Biden's credit. So he brought back normality and support for science and public health messaging. Mostly, he's had the terrible luck to be given an almost impossible problem that has defined much of the early part of his presidency. I think he's done okay. But I think on this case, it has been more of a messaging problem than a, a problem of substance. I think the policy has been okay. But again, he said that he was going to be the president to end 
COVID, which was a pretty silly thing to do, given the nature of the virus and its ability to replicate and produce new variants, which create new problems, which is exactly what happened. We got Delta, we got Omicron, and the American public got more and more depressed about those resurgences and the economic problems that have followed. Idris, let's start with that State of the Union speech. You wrote about it for this week's Economist, and I think your assessment is fairly similar to James's. I mean, if this were Rotten Tomatoes, you would be giving a lot of green splats. Yeah, I think that's right. Like James, I agreed that the uh, portion of the speech that started it about Ukraine was well-delivered, and Biden is sort of at his best when he's talking aggressively about the value of democracy and standing up to dictators and all the rest. But the rest of the speech sort of descended into a, uh, a reheating of his legislative agenda, which has been stalled for a while, which he seems sort of unconfident about. He didn't pitch like a lot of presidents do these grand new ideas. He sort of half-heartedly said to Congress, well, I proposed a few good things. Why don't you try and pass them? It's probably not going to happen. And I think that uh, it wasn't delivered in a sort of compelling way. Charlotte, before we get into assessing what Joe Biden's done right and what he's done wrong in his first year, briefly, what did you make of the speech? I was really struck by all of the economic policies that he outlined, which, as Adri says, weren't necessarily new ideas, but I was struck by the economic policies that he outlined, which were not new ideas precisely, but were very, very protectionist. In particular, the idea of having Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, who was one of the people he brought along to highlight in his speech. The idea of having the CEO of Intel up in the rafters and saying he's going to invest $20 billion in building a semiconductor plant in Ohio, um, but if you guys are able to pass this legislation, he's going to have $100 billion. It was literally like having just a piece of bait sitting up in the rafters. And I thought it was just very interesting as a way to understand how Biden thinks about economic policy and growth. He was very, very emphatic about the importance of Made in America initiatives. He was emphatic about the idea that bringing supply chains home could be a way to lower prices, which doesn't really stand up logically, right? So I was really struck by that. So I think we're all broadly in agreement here. There have been some problems with Joe Biden's foreign policy. Afghanistan was one. We were very critical of it at the time. And most importantly, he's done a good job so far on the biggest issue, the biggest test he's faced, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Let's park that for the moment, because I think there's some agreement there. Idris, what do you make of Biden's domestic achievements so far? Well, it hasn't gone very well for him. I like James's formulation that uh, Biden has had a messaging problem and has had a problem with uh, setting expectations too high. He set out to really transform America on the scale of Franklin Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson. And he did that in a, in a legislative package that he called Build Back Better, which uh, he tried for roughly eight months to get through Congress. And it isn't going to get through Congress now. And that, I think, is a huge setback for him. He might be able to parcel off bits and pieces of it and get it passed. But I think that all of the focus on that, putting all of his eggs in that one very large basket, has overshadowed the real accomplishment that, that he's been able to achieve in other parts. So, you know, they did pass a rather large infrastructure bill, 
which has been completely overshadowed by this. The American Rescue Plan, I think, in hindsight, looks like it was too big, the big stimulus that he passed right when he became president. It's about as large as he he might have been able to get for this, for this Build Back Better program. But uh, one of the big successes of the Rescue Plan was the fact that it created these more generous child tax credits, which had a meaningful appreciation on, on child poverty. It decreased the child poverty rate in America by about 40%. And now those have lapsed. There's probably not going to be legislation that reinstates it. But the White House, I think, has completely missed this sort of huge accomplishment. It has not really been touting how successful these are. And it's let itself be defined by its failure to uh, not pass, you know, the sort of big shiny object rather than touting the successes that that it did achieve. Charlotte, I thought James gave a pretty good answer on COVID. So how about the economy and economic management? Obviously, there's a limit to the extent to which the economy is under presidential control, even though politicians from the opposing party always pretend it is. You know, whenever whenever anything's going badly, they blame the president, which is unfair. Nevertheless, the president does have some power here. And as Idris suggested, that early stimulus was too big. That was probably inflationary, contributed to inflation pressures. And the Biden administration has has a real problem, as do other governments around the world with handling inflation now. I think that's the big, big question. And you heard Biden emphasize that, right? I mean, he said that getting inflation under control is is his top priority. And the problem there is that there really is a limit to what he can do, particularly as the conflict in Ukraine continues. He spoke about ways to limit the rise in oil prices. And to that end, he's releasing oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which for people who don't know is kind of a weird thing to think about. There are these vast underground caverns along the coasts of Texas and Louisiana, these salt domes in which millions of barrels of oil are stored. So America is going to release 30 million barrels along with other countries who are going to have another 30 million. The problem with that is that you're basically trying to exert control over something that is largely out of America's control in this regard. Um, The last time they tried to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, prices actually went up because markets had already priced in some bump from the SPR. And so the question is what Biden really can do to limit inflation. It's much more up to the central bank. Um, It's much more up to the Federal Reserve and how quickly they go about raising interest rates. But it's a delicate balance, right? Because Biden doesn't want to crimp economic growth. And so you see the president trying to say that he has control over a situation. But the truth is that he really doesn't. Is 60 million barrels of oil a lot? It's not nothing, but to put it in context, global consumption of crude a day is is almost 100 million barrels. So that's just in one day. In a moment, we'll go back to another State of the Union address given by a president in a bind. But first, the usual reminder, if you like the podcast, then please subscribe to The Economist. It's the only way you'll be able to listen to, watch and read all of our journalism. Our coverage of the war in Ukraine has been fantastic. The cover leader on the risks of escalation this week is particularly good. Charlotte Idris, what have you liked most in the past week? I really liked Idris's piece on the State of the Union, in part because it was so scathing. I didn't agree with every last sentence in it, but I could imagine Idris sitting at his computer scoffing as Biden made certain comments with which he disagreed. And uh, his mood really leapt off the page, but I enjoyed reading that piece. I wasn't feeling super charitable because it was a little bit late and I was still on London time. So it was effectively 3.30 a.m., which maybe was not not the best for, uh, for Joe. 
Well, if you want to read it, economist.com slash uspod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. The president was all smiles as he stepped onto the House floor, greeted by a standing ovation and loud applause. As he walked towards the podium, he accepted the handshakes that came from the senators and representatives to either side of him. He'd been the oldest president yet to take the oath at his inauguration just over a year earlier. And now he was about to make his first State of the Union address. You couldn't tell it, but he was in trouble. There were problems at home, high inflation and rising crime, and abroad, from Soviet Russia. The opposition was baring its teeth, and his own party was distancing itself, fearing his sliding approval ratings could lead to a bloodbath at the midterm elections later that year. But Ronald Reagan was buoyant. And I believe that history will remember this as an era of American renewal, remember this administration as an administration of change, and remember this Congress as a Congress of destiny. Reagan's presidency had started well. His plans to cut taxes and rein in spending, Reaganomics, passed the Congress with bipartisan support. But then the economy faltered, and by January 1982, there was a recession. The biggest portion of the speech was on the economy, and started with Reagan heralding his achievements. Together, we not only cut the increase in government spending nearly in half, we brought about the largest tax reductions and the most sweeping changes in our tax structure since the beginning of this century. Reagan didn't use the address as a course corrector, a chance to reset his agenda in an attempt to refind his early popularity. Our current problems are not the product of the recovery program that's only just now getting underway, as some would have you believe. They are the inheritance of decades of tax and tax and spend and spend. He stayed firm, believing that to work, his reforms just needed a bit more time. And that is why I can report to you tonight that in the near future, the State of the Union and the economy will be better, much better, if we summon the strength to continue on the course that we've charted. This stay the course was the key message of Reagan's first State of the Union, and it paid off. The Republicans did lose House seats in the 1982 midterm elections, but 26 was fewer than many feared, and they held firm in the Senate. Then, two years later... It's morning again in America. With the economy recovering, Reagan was re-elected, winning 49 of 50 states, the biggest electoral vote tally ever recorded. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes. His 1984 campaign continued the theme of the earlier State of the Union, Leadership that's working. Our country is prouder and stronger and better. Ronald Reagan turned his presidency around by doubling down on his domestic program. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? That path isn't available to Joe Biden. His agenda stalled when the Build Back Better Act died in the Senate. To pull off a Reagan-esque recovery, he'll need to chart another course. That 1984 Reagan campaign is so schmaltzy. 
Charlotte, what do you think might be possible for Joe Biden between now and the midterms? I guess we're talking about domestic legislation here, because in terms of foreign policy, I think Ukraine and the Russian invasion is is going to be his focus there. So let's put that aside for the moment. I'm really interested in whether Biden can craft anything that looks like a sensible economic strategy for dealing with China. And if you look at why he was bringing Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, to the State of the Union and what he was asking Congress to do, he was talking really about this bill that has passed the House and there is a Senate version that has also passed the Senate that is a whole raft of measures that supposedly would improve America's economic standing in dealing with China. So there's all kinds of stuff in here. Um, The House version is nearly 3,000 pages long, which makes the Affordable Care Act look like a post-it. And it includes everything from training for workers to support for research to capital controls So restrictions on the outbound investment that American companies could make in China. So it's a really broad set of things. And the question is whether the two bills might be reconciled. Um, I think there's a chance that it might be. I mean, everyone in Congress wants to seem like they're tough on China. However, there are lots of specific provisions that can invite the ire of a particular constituency. So the Chamber of Commerce and other business groups are really concerned about the idea that the U.S. trade representative would be able to bar uh, certain investments that they might make in the same way that CFIUS can bar Chinese investments in America now. So I think that there'll be some kind of battle over this. But that's a really big area of interest. And complementary to that, the Biden administration has been talking for a long time about trade policy and how it might deal with China through different trade actions. There's really no support whatsoever in either party for any big trade deal, but there might be support for something called the Indo-Pacific Framework, which the administration has been rumbling about for a while and which it supposedly is getting ready to prepare, which would basically be some kind of strategy for working with economic allies in Asia to strengthen economic relations with them and therefore to, to counter Chinese influence. Idris, shortly after Joe Biden gave the State of the Union, Joe Manchin gave an interview to Politico in which he seemed to be making an offer to the president, which suggested some kind of legislation might be possible. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether you see something likely to happen there? There's still ongoing, I think, quite early stage talks between the White House and Joe Manchin on what exactly he would be comfortable in passing. So after having killed basically the Build Back Better Act, the White House took a bit of a vituperative swing at him and sort of mouthed off a bit about his commitment to democratic policies. And I think that maybe has set them back. But relations between them are thawing. And some sort of compromise is supposed to be in the works, although I think it's it's months away. And I think in the short term, what we'll see from the White House is just a focus on getting their Supreme Court nominee through the Senate, which is always a bit of a circus and probably will be successful for them. That'll be a sort of short-term coup. And they'll only have a few short months before the midterms to get anything through. And I think that they might be able to pull something through. It'll be much narrower. It won't be as transformative as they had initially hoped. But I think that there is a reasonable chance that they they might be able to get something through. And certainly they'll, they'll probably make some effort towards getting the uh, China competitiveness bill out as well. But all in all, I don't think that we're going to see such an inspiring 
sort of uh, chorus or parade of legislation in the coming months that they'll be able to write uh, a ship that's not looking uh, like it's headed in the right direction. I don't know. It depends what they stuff into that big bill, right? Into the big China bill. There's a lot in there. Um, To kind of to your point on the infrastructure bill, there's a lot of stuff that actually happened there that if the Biden administration had been better at communicating it, might have been viewed as a pretty big legislative win. It's just in the shadow of the Build Back Better Act that it felt like such a failure. Speaking of infrastructure, though, I thought the most depressing part of Biden's speech is when he talked about Infrastructure Week, which has become a joke, which he acknowledged, of a kind of well-intentioned policy that is never, ever going to get passed. And he said, we're going to stop talking about Infrastructure Week. We're going to have an infrastructure decade, which just felt like a decade of not just one week, but years and years of intentions that are never realized. And um, I don't think he meant it in that way, but it felt like a really depressing moment of unintentionally explaining the prospects for his agenda moving forward. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Elliot Morris is a data journalist for The Economist based in Washington, D.C. and a good friend of the podcast. He's been running the numbers on what voters really think of the president. So our latest YouGov Economist poll has uh, Biden's approval rating at 42 percent and his disapproval rating at 47 percent. The poll was conducted entirely after Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The average in in our previous polls is closer to 40 percent approval and 50 percent disapproval. So there could be some movement toward Biden here, although, right, all these numbers are within the margin of error. So we'll need additional surveys to check. What about when you look into the cross tabs? What about Biden support among different demographic groups in America? What, if anything, strikes you as interesting there? Well, the story here, I I think, is just how polarized America has become. Biden's approval rating with Democrats is about 80% right now, which actually is rather low. That speaks to his overall approval ratings being rather poor. But his disapproval rating among Republicans is also 80%. So there's this you know, huge gap between Americans and how they feel about their president. And in fact, this gap between the parties on approval ratings, which is about 80% right now, it's like, it's practically zero for Republicans and 80 for Democrats, is twice as large as polarization in presidential approval ratings used to be under Nixon. Um, it was only 40%, for example. And that's about as far back as really good uh, approval rating polls go. Uh, The real disappointing number for Biden, at least if you're in the West Wing, is that his approval rating among independents is only 30 points. If those are accurate readings uh, and if people vote how they feel about Biden this November, that 30 percent among independents is going to be disastrous at the ballot box if it doesn't change. So you have, what, 40 
40 odd percent of the population that thinks the president is terrific, 40 percent who thinks he, he's terrible, and then you have the independents. And so the, in terms of the kind of available margin for change, that's that's where you want to look. And at the moment, Biden's Biden's doing terribly. And I was looking at some studies of polling before talking to you, which said that the State of the Union addressed historically hardly moves presidential polling at all. You know, there's really, really a tiny movement, if anything at all. So I think next week's poll, we're likely to see Joe Biden's ratings pretty much where they are now. Given that's the case, what can move presidential poll ratings these days? What kind of events, what kind of news? You know, if we were looking for some kind of change in the Biden numbers, what do you think it would come from? And I realize this is a bit of a hypothetical. Well, if we look over the last year of Biden's approval ratings, the big movements came um, with his, you know, sort sort of disastrous or at least disastrously covered foreign policy uh, events. So the the withdrawal from Afghanistan that ended up a bit botched was the real driver of a decline in his approval ratings last year. Um, but there's just been a steady chipping away at, at his ratings. There's just a constant negative spiral, roughly, for the president. I think what this indicates is that there's a group of people who are willing to give the president credit at the beginning of their term for things they might done or things they may have promised. And as those things don't come to fruition because the president doesn't control the legislative process in America, it's very hard for him to get um, his priorities passed in the Senate in particular, uh, those voters tend to sort of fall out of the fold for the president. So some evidence of this is that young people are particularly opposed to the president right now, much less favorable than you would predict based on how they voted in 2020. Uh, and a lot of this, I, I think, has to do with him not uh, pursuing as progressive of policies as he promised to them in the campaign. And just before I let you go, just a quick sit rep on what you expect at the moment in the midterms in terms of both the House and the Senate. The Economist hasn't launched our predictive models for the House and the Senate yet. Just going off of historical patterns, we should expect the Democrats to lose maybe 20 or 30 seats, depending on you know how many number of competitive seats there are after redistricting um, in the House, and a couple of seats in the Senate. Those aren't huge numbers, right? There are 400 seats in the House and 100 in the Senate, but because things are so close right now, right, Democrats can afford to lose five seats in the House and none in the Senate. I, I think most people are putting their money on the Republicans. Idris, what do you make of Biden's very low approval ratings? To what extent do you attribute them to him not being great at the presidenting thing? And, and to what extent are they really just a reflection of partisanship? I don't know that it's just a reflection of partisanship and polarization. When Biden came into office, his approval rating was 18 points higher than Donald Trump's was at the start of his presidency. And now they've converged. They're basically both equally unpopular one year into their presidency, which is kind of a remarkable slide for Biden. I think part of it is being unlucky. Part of it is inflation catching up with him. Part of it is the variants, you know, emerging and stalling whatever victory lap he wanted to take on COVID. But it is also partially, I think, self-made. If you look at the polling, it's sort of a slow and steady erosion, except for the period around the Afghanistan withdrawal, in which case it drops pretty remarkably and hasn't recovered since. And add to that, I think there have been very few sort of positive moments in the last few months. There was some early success, but it's really all been swamped by Biden going from one crisis to the next. 
One of the things that's evident from the polling is that the economy, which is always very important to voters, is really top of mind. 71% of adults told Pew in a poll that the economy was their top concern. And if you think about the early days of the Biden presidency, when he was talking about not just the economy, but all these climate initiatives, um, climate change on its own ranks 14th in voters' list of things that they are concerned about. So I think that's pretty striking. The response to Biden's speech that was given, not just by Republicans, but also by different people on the left, you had Rashida Tlaib give a response that she said wasn't about opposing Biden, but instead about supporting him and his Build Back Better agenda. That may be true, but you see how this highlights that different members of the left want to mark their own territory. I was struck by some of the things that she highlighted as steps that Biden could take now, which included having the federal government ban fossil fuel leasing and reject permits for drilling. I mean, it just seems like a very strange time to be hawking those kind of policies because A, they wouldn't do much to mitigate climate change, and B, we're in the middle of a war that is raising oil prices. So I don't think that the plan that she presented was particularly compelling Uh, But I thought it was notable that she gave it. Yeah, Idris, one thing that Biden has had to contend with is that when he became president, he was at the head of this extraordinarily broad democratic coalition, which really could agree on one thing, which was the need to get rid of Donald Trump. And since he won office, some bits inevitably will be disappointed. At many times, it's felt like all of the bits of it have been disappointed with him at the same time. Yeah, that's right. But I think one thing that we could tell from Biden's speech this week was that uh, he seems to be pulling away from the left flank of his party. Initially, you know, his proposals for what to do with the American welfare state and what to do about climate change were, uh, I think, hailed a bit more from that side of the party. And as those have failed, I think that he has um, readjusted. So in the in the last speech he gave to Congress, you know, two or three months after he became president, he was talking about um, systemic racism and white supremacy and those sorts of things. And in this speech, he he didn't make mention of of those. He instead said that uh, he opposed defunding the police and that we needed to fund the police instead, which got him a standing ovation from Republicans. And he also said that we needed to secure the border, which, you know, Republicans also stood up to clap for. So he is, I think, having been a bit friendlier and a bit cuddlier with that side of the party, is is readjusting. Now, I don't know that it'll actually materialize in um, any sort of lasting approval rating boost or, or electoral advantage. If you looked at the... Uh, response given by the Republicans. This one was given by Kim Reynolds, who's the governor of Iowa. They basically rehearsed what their midterm lines are going to be, which is that uh, Biden has brought us back to the 70s because there is high inflation, high crime. And uh, I think she said that a Soviet army was rampaging. And, you know, I think that's going to be fairly effective for them. And I don't think that uh, a sort of slight readjustment is going to uh, make much of a difference. Rashida Tlaib wasn't the only Democrat who gave a response. Also, there was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus who spoke after the speech. There was a Democrat from New Jersey who was speaking at an event that was supposed to be more bipartisan. There's a big question of who emerges as someone who might be a leader of the Democratic Party and and be able to bring all these different factions that we've talked about together in 2024 in particular. So that will be interesting to watch. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap this up. My own view is that, yes, Joe Biden's poll ratings are very low. Yes, as Adri says, that's you know partly his doing, maybe largely his doing. 
And yes, he gives a terrible State of the Union speech. He's a bad public speaker generally. For all that, my expectations of what's a good presidency these days have been lowered so much by Donald Trump's presidency. I still think Joe Biden is doing you know, a relatively good job. From the point of view of America's allies, you know, where I sit, a president who's sitting in the White House doesn't fill allies with existential terror in the way Donald Trump did. That feels like a, a very important change, particularly at the moment with what's happening in Ukraine. Okay, before I let you guys go, I have a quiz. The Economist mentioned Joe Biden in September 1987, when his first presidential campaign failed after accusations of plagiarism. He could have either saved the campaign or his chairmanship of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He chose the latter, we wrote. Question. As chairman of that committee, Biden presided over the hearings of two of the current Supreme Court justices. Which two? Breyer and Thomas. Sorry, what year is this? Or you didn't put that in the question? Mm, I'm not sure I've even given you the... I haven't even given you the... Uh, well, uh, well, no, I'm afraid you haven't got that info to go with. Um, I think Idris is right. It has to be Breyer and Thomas. Idris is indeed right. Picking up where John Fassman left off, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were also confirmed under Biden's watch. Question two. In 1987, Robert Bork was nominated to serve on the Supreme Court, but after Biden's committee gave him an unfavorable report, he was rejected by the Senate. An anti-Bork TV ad was narrated by a legendary Hollywood actor who'd once starred alongside Audrey Hepburn and won an Oscar for portraying a heroic lawyer. Who was the actor? Gregory Gregory Peck. Peck. It was Gregory Peck. I think you both got that. Maybe Charlotte just got there just first. Anyway, full marks this week. We've got to make this quiz harder again. We'll maybe get some more quiz questions coming in from our audience. Gregory Peck won an Oscar in 1962 for playing Atticus Finch in the film adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Fantastic. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. We haven't talked that much about Ukraine this week, though it's front of mind for all of us. Fiona Hill, one of America's foremost experts on Russia and on Vladimir Putin, talks to Anne McElvoy on The Economist Asks podcast, so go and listen to that. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. 